Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, welcoming you to another episode of Going Deeper Online. As always, I am joined by some of my favorite people and fellow Bible readers. We have my longtime friend, Mark Bertrand, Pastor Mark Bertrand from Southwestern Ontario. We have Pastor Jesse Stewart from Glendale, Kentucky. We have Dr. Miranda Webster from deep in the heart of Texas, or two miles down the road. And uh, we have Pastor Peter Mahaffey from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And then we have Crystal Humphrey from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So welcome to all of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Well, right on. Crystal, you weren't able to be with us last week. And so we've got you back this week. So why don't we put you right to work? Can we get you to open our time in prayer? Yeah, sure. Be happy to. Almighty God, we praise you because you are the everlasting God and the creator of the ends of the earth. And it's so reassuring for us to know that we have a God who doesn't faint or grow weary and whose understanding is unsearchable. Thank you for the love that you've shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that. Crystal, we we may have lost you. Uh, so I'm gonna assume you're still praying for us. And good thing is God's not on this Zoom call. Uh, so he's he's got the us covered. While we wait for Crystal to come back, uh, let me just do a little housekeeping and uh, tell you that if you are uh, watching, wherever you're watching from, whether it's on uh, the TGC Canada Facebook page or the uh, uh, End of the Word Facebook page or the End of the Word YouTube page, we would love for you to announce yourself. Let us know you're there and then put your questions in too. Uh, so we have lost Crystal. I think probably the, the internet went out where she is. Uh, but uh, put your questions in there and we will get to those. And uh, Evan actually texts them to me uh, as we're in the course of the show. So, oh, there's Crystal back. There you are. We lost her for a few minutes. Welcome back. Hey, we're glad to have you. I assume you prayed for us and God heard. God's not on the call and he's not subject to internet outages. But uh, anyway, thank you for doing that, Crystal. Sorry about that. We're glad to have you back. Right on. Well, one of the things uh, that we wanted to do each week that we're together is introduce all the new books and letters uh, that we meet along the way. And uh, this week we met quite a few. And uh, there's a a few in the New Testament, but before we get there, Mark, uh, we ran into the book of Deuteronomy 
And I thought since you've been helping us out with numbers, you could give us a bit of an introduction there. Sure. Well, my, my congregation in the last five years, I've preached an extended series through Leviticus and we're just about finished a series through numbers. And I did extended Bible studies in Genesis and in Exodus. Uh, Deuteronomy is the one that I have not yet done, but I, I know lots about it. Uh, it, it the, the, the word Deutero, Deutero, well, uh, it means second law. I, I was going to yeah. try to get fancy there, but uh, the, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, it's, it's a restatement of the law. Um, and in the Hebrew uh, Bible, it's called, these are the words, um, which I think is a beautiful title. What's really interesting when you think about it, Genesis uh, spans about 2000 years from Adam to Joseph. Exodus spans 80 years. Leviticus kind of fits into a window beginning sometime after they begin constructing the tabernacle, but mostly before it's finished. We get a a story in Leviticus uh, of uh, of the offering with Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire, but it it probably takes a a number of weeks for Leviticus to kind of roll Leviticus is like a drop box in Exodus, right? Like if if you were reading Exodus on the internet, and you were to click on something, Leviticus is what drops down. Right, yeah, so Exodus is telling them how to build the tabernacle. Leviticus is telling them how to use the tabernacle. Uh, Numbers spans 40 years from Sinai through Kadesh Barnea to Shittim on the plains of Moab. But Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is really hard to kind of figure out because it, it begins in Deuteronomy chapter one, verse three, which we read today. It says in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, yeah. Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in the commandment to him. And then we know from the end, the very last chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verse 5 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beit Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plain of Moab for 30 days, and then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. What we know about Joshua is Joshua sends spies from Shittim, where the book of Numbers ends, into into the Promised Land to Jericho to spy it out, come back for three days, they crossed the Jordan and within 10 days of the beginning of the of the 41st year and celebrate the Passover the, over there. So anyways, all that to say, the whole of Deuteronomy probably takes place in a period of about 28 days at the most. And the Israelites know these are the last words that Moses is ever going to speak to them. I mean, if you grew up, like I grew up in a church where we had the same pastor for about 30 years he was the only guy I ever knew. He was an old man by the end. And I mean, this is what it's like for the Israelites. This is the only leader they've ever known. This has been the man of God, the one who speaks with God. And he's going to stand there and he's going to say these words. He's going to repeat for them these, these things. And I mean, the significance of knowing that when he finally stops speaking, he's never going to come up there and speak again. You know, that's the, the richness of Deuteronomy for the people who are hearing it. And to us, it sounds like a lot of repetition because we just read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
and numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah but there, the other thing I'd say here, <laughs> yeah, uh, is, is any time, any time in yeah. scripture that you have repetition, uh, that is like God underlining and highlighting things because paper and ink mm-hmm. was not easy to come back by in those days. It was not like today where you can just duplicate stuff all over the place. So it's an enormously significant book, especially for the people of Israel. This is the second generation hearing again with their own ears. These are the words. This is the way that you are meant to go. This is what God has commanded to us. So it's a mixture of of law and ritual and narrative. Um, But as you read it, just keep in mind, these are the final words of one of the most godly men um, that God lays on his heart as he speaks to these people. Yeah, the, the, the sense or the mood that I have when I read Deuteronomy is this is, these are like all the grandkids gathered around grandpa's knees, right? Because these are the children of the generation that lived the stories of you know, Exodus, Leviticus, et cetera. But these are, their, these are their children. So these are all the grandkids gathered around the knees of, of great grandpa Moses. Uh, for his last his last family devotion, yeah. uh, that's that's the feel it has uh, when I read it. That's that's awesome. Um, one of the so the next set of new books that or new letters that we encounter were in the New Testament. They were the letters of John. This past week we encountered First John, Second John, and Third John. And Crystal, you've been teaching through First John. Uh, is that right? Tell tell us a little bit about what you're teaching, and then also <laughs> by way of that, uh, introduce those three letters to us. Yeah, so I, I taught a women's Bible study through First John uh, not so long ago, um, so I'm pretty familiar with it. But with with all three letters, there's a strong likelihood that uh, this is the Apostle John, so the same John that wrote the fourth gospel. Um, and as I was uh, researching for uh, my First John study, I discovered that uh, early Christian tradition is unanimous in describing First John to the Apostle John. Um, The internal evidence is also really strong. Um, John writes that he's an eyewitness of the word of life. Um, And the language and concepts between the two books are are very similar. Um, So John is, of course, you know, in the inner circle with Jesus. He is, um, he was a pillar of the Jerusalem church, it says in Galatians 2.9. And then after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, church tradition says he moved to Ephesus. And it's likely from Ephesus that he wrote these letters to the congregations in Asia Minor that were under his care. Um, So John lived to be quite old, maybe 30 years longer than the other apostles, um, according to tradition. And um, so these letters may be some of the last canonical books written. Uh, Most of the commentators that I looked at gave them quite a late date, maybe 85 to 95 AD. so Second John is written to the elect lady and her children, and that's likely a reference to a local congregation, not an actual lady. And Third John seems to be a personal letter to someone named Gaius, who we don't really know much about. Um, there is sort of this theory out there that maybe all three letters were sent in one packet, and there was a letter for Gaius and one for his church, and then one that was like a mini sermon that was to be sent around to um, all of the local churches under John's care. So that would be 1st John. Um, and 1st John is a little unusual uh, for a letter because there is no salutation or parting words like letters. The form's also a little strange. It doesn't kind of go from topic to topic. He kind of uses this circular argument where he presents a theme and then he moves on to something else and then he circles back to the first theme and he just kind of keeps circling around. Um, 
the purpose for John writing seems to be that he was concerned about false teachers um, that he calls antichrists that were in their midst. Um, and these antichrist figures were former church members, it says in uh, 1 John 2, 19. Uh, it seems like they were saying false things about the person and work of Christ. Um, John seems to be defending the incarnation mm. of Jesus. You know, he makes a point to say that uh, he's the son of God come in the flesh. Uh, he also seems to defend the work of Christ, that Jesus's physical death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. He talks about how the blood of Jesus, the eternal son, purifies us from every sin. Um, and the main reason for John's writing seems to be to give believers assurance of their salvation. He kind of has this nice little purpose statement in uh, 1 John 5, 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And he kind of gives these three tests. This is the last thing I'll say. He kind of gives these three tests for um, believers to know that they are genuinely saved. There's this doctrinal test that is, you know, genuine believers confess that Jesus is God's son, come in the flesh. There's this moral test that genuine believers obey God's commands. And then there's this relational test that genuine believers love one another. Um, so there's maybe more to say, but I think that's the gist of it. That's really good. Yeah, First John has always been one of my, my favorites. I, uh, at one point I had it mostly memorized. Uh, I, I, had, I remember hearing somebody challenge me. They said, pick a book of the New Testament that has five chapters and read it before you go to bed every night uh, for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, you'll have it memorized. So I did that with, uh, with First John. And it is true. I don't know if it's true for 46-year-old men. Uh, it was definitely true for a 20-year-old man. Uh, I, I think it, it might take me more than 30 days now to do that. But yeah, First John is a, it's a marvelous book. We're actually um, thinking about doing our next preaching series when we're done the one that we're doing now on First John. It's a great book for people who are wrestling with uh, assurance of their own salvation, right? I write these things that you may know. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Anyone else uh, have an interesting experience with any of the Johannine corpus that you want to share before we move on? Don't all jump in at once, no? Okay. All right, well, thank you very much. I, I, I don't think we've missed any. I think that's all the new books that we covered this week. But uh, if that is the case, if I haven't missed any, I want to go back to something that uh, I suspect many of our readers will have tripped on this past week. It's one of the really tricky passages. Uh, it, I imagine if we were to uh, jointly collaborate on a list of the, the 10 dropout passages in, in the Bible, meaning that the, the passages that knock a lot of people out of Bible reading and maybe even right out of the faith uh, or out of inquiry into the faith, Numbers 31 would be on that list. Uh, if you're a Bible reader and you've been trucking through the Bible, uh, so far so good. If you made it through Leviticus, good for you. Um, and, uh, and then you come into Numbers and, and when you run into Numbers 31, uh, for some people, I think it's a game changer. It takes the breath right out of you. It, uh, it's an unusual passage. Now, Mark, you made reference in advance to, to this passage. You talked about how you mentioned the, you know, that story of Balaam and how the end of the story of Balaam is they, you know, they find him at the bottom of the pile. And um, the, this, what I want to talk about is the, is the pile. Um, yeah. The fact that God sends the Israelites to take vengeance upon the Midianites. And, and it's an absolute slaughter. And, you know, for those of us who have been told, you know, hey, we're the turn the other cheek people. We're the love your enemies, do good to those uh, who, who hate you. Um, 
this is a tricky one. So let me, let me read a bit from it. Numbers 31, verse 1. The Lord, so Yahweh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So one of the last things Moses was supposed to do, Grandpa Moses, before he gives his, you know, closing devotion that we were all, you know, so nostalgic about just a few minutes. But before he does that, Grandpa Moses is supposed to lead the people of Israel in genocide, basically, right? And and it's God's idea. This this wasn't Israel acting out uh, of their own cultural assumptions and they, they got this wrong. No, no, this was God sending them out as an army of vengeance. The Lord spoke to Moses and, and said, go and do that. Okay. So they go out, they, they, they attack this, this uh, group of Midianites, wipe them out. And they do what uh, armies in that day did. They, the, the army came home with captives. That was one of the ways soldiers were, were paid in those days. Uh, they got captives that they could then sell or use as domestic servants, whatever. But Moses wasn't happy that the soldiers had brought home these, these captives. So in verse 13, Moses and Eleazar, the priests, and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him, but all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. So Moses commands that the older women all be slain, executed, uh, that the younger males or the, the teenage boys that had, I assume the officers had thought to sell uh, for, for some profit, uh, they're to be slain. The only ones that are allowed uh, to be kept alive are, are young, young girls. The rest were to be put to death. As I said, this takes the air out of a lot of Bible readers. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? We, we've, got, we've got war crimes by, by any current definition, right? Captives being executed. Uh, we've got genocide by modern definitions. And, and we've got human, human trafficking, uh, people being sold for, for profit, we assume. What in the world is going on here? Mark, uh, uh, since we're good friends, you're the only one I could give this to who wouldn't punch me right in the eye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't you get us started? But this is such a big one. This is such a, a head scratcher. We'll get the whole panel to weigh in. But Mark, since you've preached on this recently, help us out here. What in the world is going on? All right. Um, these are definitely, these are weighty things. And yeah. Let, let me, I want to, I want to give two, two answers. I want to give a biblical answer and that one has far more weight, but I also want to give a cultural uh, response here that, that is something that I learned that I didn't even know. Uh, my wife lived for a number of years in the Middle East. Her, her parents were missionaries there and she and her two younger sisters were there. And I, I knew this part, whenever they went out, they had to cover themselves up in the way you see people covered up. But everywhere they went, they had to have a male leading them everywhere they went. Even if the male that went with them was only four years old, a little four-year-old boy, you want to go to the market, get milk, you've got to call over to the neighbor, hey, can, can I take your four-year-old? And he has to lead the way, and the woman follows along after him. And I knew that part, but in the midst of discussing this passage with my wife, and uh, you mentioned like slave 
the boys, even the young ones, and, and you went down to teenagers, but I think this passage goes right down to infancy. Yeah. This is slay every male. And it was interesting, in talking to my wife, she said uh, the reason that they always had a male with them, even if they were, the boy was just a little tiny boy, is the culture in that Arab land that she was living in is if something were to ever happen to the women, even if the boy couldn't defend the women, he would be told what had been done. And when he finally grew up, he would avenge even with blood what had been done. And I mean, this right. was just ingrained. Yeah. This is modern culture in certain places. And, and this is probably why God says you must destroy all of the males. That, that's a cultural argument. You can take it or leave it. That was something I thought, okay, I, I understand how deeply ingrained certain cultural things is because one of the things that we respond, one of the reasons we respond the way we do is because of how deeply our own culture and our own expectations are ingrained into us that we read these stories and we're aghast. There, there are places in the world they read this story and they hardly blink. Um, but let me give you uh, the biblical answer. And, and I would give a biblical answer, I think, on, on three levels. Uh, one, and all of these are true. Uh, very broadly, uh, we're dealing with God who says in Scripture things like the wages of sin is death, who says it is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment, who makes it very clear that he is the final judge of all the earth and that if God permits you to live today, he has shown to you mercy, that God is not under any obligation to allow a person to live out 80, 90, or 100 years. He could at this moment um, command reckoning for your soul, and it would be justice for him to do that. So for God to say the time has run out on this particular group of people, uh, this is the moment of judgment, and this is how I'm going to do it. That may be hard for us to grapple with, and you can push back a little bit if you like, but that's broadly, you know, as I look at these kind of passages, and they get harder as we get into the book of Joshua. Uh, God shows some mercy here in allowing some of the women to live in Jericho. He slays everybody, um, with the exception of Rahab and her family. Less broadly, uh, and getting a little bit more specific, God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, as he's cutting the covenant with him, he says, this land is all going to be yours, but not yet. For 400 years, your people your people will be captives because the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullness. And what we know about God is that uh, he did not leave the Amorites without opportunity to know him or to turn to him. Um, we read about uh uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being righteous witnesses in the midst of that land. We even read about Lot being a witness of righteousness in the midst of Sodom. And so uh, this is not particularly aimed at the Midianites, but as we get into the next bit and as we start dealing with that genocide, God says for 400 years, these people have built up their iniquity to the fullness, and now this is judgment. But very specifically, and particularly with this group, um, the, the women who are put to death are, are combatants in a war. Um, they were active insurgents who attacked Israel with the intention of destroying them. That was not attraction in Numbers 25 that led them to the Israelite men thinking, hey, I'd really like one of these guys to be my husband. It was the desire to see Israel destroyed, and they did it through uh, adulterous, immoral, sexual idolatry, 
and uh, and God says that this is the reason that uh, that these women are to be dealt with in the way that they are because they're active combatants in a holy war. So I'll let somebody else jump in there, but that's yeah, no, that's where a good I start. Begin. Yeah, anyone else want to jump in on that? That's it's a big passage. Yeah, I, I think first uh, we should say that this is a unique time in redemptive history and should not be repeated by Christians. Uh, Israel was God's special nation state. And so God wielded the nation of Israel as a sword in his hand, like uh, like Brother Mark was mentioning, um, to exact judgment on sinful nations. And God is consistent uh, throughout the scriptures with this. Whenever his sword did not do everything he commanded it to do, or even the way he commanded it, judgment would come upon the sword upon the people yeah so if they if they overstepped their boundaries or if they understepped they didn't do everything he commanded them to do and so we're seeing the a plague breaking out uh on the people of god for not carrying out the the judgment that was commanded the the vengeance from god that was commanded and so this story of conquering the moabites within midian is a special example of israel as the sword in the hand of god uh exacting judgment on Midian for seducing Israel away from their first love. Um, it's not an example of the regular posture of God's people to the nations. Uh, this is Israel following a very specific command of God. Uh, and as Brother Mark said, this is a holy war. Uh, you know, I think Gordon Wenham actually brings out in his commentary that Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the high priest, is participating in this war, which proves that it is a holy war. And so God is commanding um, Israel to exact his vengeance here. But also note throughout the scriptures, God also wields sinful nations mm -hmm. like a sword to exact judgment on Israel, like yeah, the Egyptians, yeah. Syrians, Babylonians, and finally the Romans. But at the end of the day, God is still consistent whether he commands Israel to be a sword against a nation or a nation to be God's sword against Israel. Uh, whenever that sword over, oversteps God's commandment, the sword is also punished. Mm -hmm. So I think we have so, some of that going on uh, here yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Peter. Go ahead. I think I'll just uh, add, um, I think one, we should just say up front that it's okay to feel emotionally conflicted when you read this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, think, I think Christians need to feel that freedom. We say, I don't fully get this. It's hard to stomach this. Um, but I think going kind of with what Mark's saying with Genesis 15, I think we have to always remember the relationship between Israel and these other nations is always tied to the covenant of Genesis 12, mm -hmm. where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And, and uh, uh, Numbers 25 demonstrates that the Midianites were a curse to Israel. And so God is actually keeping his promise in saying, those who curse you, Israel, I'm going to curse. And, and, and I'm going to use you as my hammer in that very act. I, I don't think, you know, none of us, well, I guess there are some, but as Christians, most of us don't struggle with God slaying the firstborn in Egypt, primarily because it was God who did it. We tend to struggle with passages where it seems like God uses humans as the agents. Yeah. to do that. Um, but, you know, God killed the firstborn in Egypt. Now he did it through the angel of death, whereas here he's doing it through his own people. And so for some reason in our minds, we, we tend to find that easier to accept that God did it in contrast to God using his own uh, covenant people. Um, so that's also something to keep in mind as, as we think about this. And then the, the final thing I would say is 
I don't know if we have categories to, to truly grasp that a people can become so corrupt, so depraved, the whole nation, that the only thing that God can really do at that point is destruction, destroy, kind of like the flood. Mm -hmm. um, basically, God purified the earth of the corruption of humanity at that point. Um, so those are some things that help us possibly with this passage. Yeah, that's good. Miranda, were you jumping in? Or Yeah. So just kind of like what Jesse said, I pretty much just have very similar things that, like you said, Israel was a theocracy. And so um, if you were against Israel, you were essentially against God. And if you rebelled against that, you know, Israel, you were rebelling against God. And so this unity that's unique during that particular time so additionally, right, we find that sometimes, just like Jesse said, that sometimes Israel is used by God to bring about his judgment. Sometimes other nations are used about used by God to bring about his judgment on Israel. And then sometimes other nations are used by God to bring about judgment on other nations. So we see this kind of way in which God uses. And I think we talked about this maybe last week or maybe the week before uh, when we were reading in Isaiah about Babylon and how uh, other God uses Babylon later in Israel's history to bring about his wrath to Israel. And then he brings up a, another nation, the Medes and the Persians, to ultimately bring about their destruction. So yeah. he's working in and through the nations. Another thing just to kind of add to this conversation is just that this act wasn't an act of revenge. Um, and we see that the nation isn't doing it in a vengeful way. Um, and, and in Romans 12, 19, it, you know, it says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written. Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. So this isn't retaliation, um, but it's God's wrath being poured out. And I think it's helpful to go back to Genesis to see those connections there. Yeah. I, one other little thought too, yeah, sure. with the, the, with the slave women that were kept, um, Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, for later reference, is a great place to look at how they were treated with dignity. Yeah. And um, if they weren't sex slaves, which is really important, if an Israelite man fell in love with one of these Midianite girls, then there were certain procedures in which yeah. they would have to do that, which is really important within this yeah. context. It's a good footnote or a good asterisk, I, I suppose, in the sense that that some that is true. Um, the the Bible do, does not allow you know captives from war to be treated as sex slaves. That that I think that's important to say. Um, yeah. It I'm not sure that it answers all of what we feel uh, when yeah. we when we read this passage. Um, but it's important to say. One, I'm going to say a couple things that I hear people say. I mean, to be clear, I know all you guys. So you know, I, you know, I, I don't believe this, but I, I want to voice the question because I hear it all the time. So here are you guys. You're all smart and and you're all orthodox, right? We we were talking before we went to air. Um, you know, we're all from the same theological tradition. It it might be interesting sometime to uh, to invite some some Bible readers from other traditions uh, to to join us. But everybody within our tradition will answer this question the same way. But here, here's how I hear people from other traditions or maybe from other maturity levels um, answer this question. Because anybody who reads the Bible runs into this passage, right? And as I think it was Mark, 
it's not just this. It, it actually starts to get worse, doesn't it? When you get into, into Joshua. But they, they run into it first here. And so here, here are two answers that I hear, are two ways of resolving this, this passage. One is to say that uh, the Israelites were a primitive people who were learning about God. And since the Bible, you know, is progressive, we learn, we learn lots, but we don't really, really understand God until Jesus comes, that this should really be understood as a primitive people uh, misunderstanding God's will. So, so that's, that's one. And I would say that's actually pretty common. In fact, I wonder if that wouldn't be the majority answer among evangelicalism as a whole. If you were to poll a thousand evangelicals from different traditions, I wonder if that wouldn't be, you know, number one answer on the, the family feud board. So they just didn't understand. They, they, they didn't yet get it. Second answer might actually technically be a heresy but I still think it would probably be number two on the board if we were playing Family Feud, which would be, well, that's in the Old Testament. God was very angry and wrathy in the Old Testament, and then uh, he became a Christian in the New Testament, and now uh, he's different. Hopefully they wouldn't state it that way. But those, though, I hear those two answers. Those would be, I'm pretty sure if we played Family Feud, that would be number one and number two on the board. Why are, why are those answers not acceptable? You know, I, I kind of wonder for us when we look at this, and it is disturbing. It's disturbing for me as a boy mama <laughs> to read this passage this week. Um, but, you know, if we feel like God is, is the punishment is too strict for their sin, I do wonder if it's a little bit of a case of us not understanding the holiness of God and not understanding how serious our sin is, um, especially idolatry as an offense against God. Um, you know, and maybe that contrast between Old and New Testament that people seem to think is just actually cheap grace, like not quite understanding what Christ accomplished when he paid for our sin on the cross. Um, so I think, you know, when we read this passage, it is supposed to be disturbing because sin is such an offense against a holy God that it is that disturbing. Like the, the punishment fits the crime, and I think it should be unsettling in that way. Yeah. Mark, are you jumping in? You turned yellow on my board there. Yeah. Um, the um, God is not less ruthless with sin in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament, but there's a significant difference, and we know what it is, is that in the Old Testament, where the, the, the penalty for sin falls entirely upon the guilty, and Israel uh, often is... is uh, uh, accepted from that through the sacrificial system um, in the New Testament, all of that wrath falls on the Son of God. He, it is no less ruthless, though, that the Son of God is taken, is beaten, is pierced, is put upon a cross. Uh, when I preached uh, um, uh, Numbers 25, which is where Phineas uh, impales the two mm -hmm. with his spear, you know, we talked about the fact that that in that situation, I mean, God called for the for the public execution by hanging off all of the leaders in Israel for the sin, and then Phineas satisfies it, atones for it by piercing them with a spear. That all of those things happen to Christ in the New Testament. He is publicly humiliated, yeah. publicly hung up on a tree, pierced with a spear. All those things should happen to me. It's not that God has changed. God mm -hmm. is the same in the Old Testament. God is the same in the New Testament. 
Um, but Jesus has come and has, through his blood, offered to us a better covenant. Okay. All right. So, Mark, that's the answer to the question, why is the second yeah. answer wrong? Um, that, that actually God is the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus has absorbed the, the wrath of God. Okay. Um, what about the progressive revelation? Were they, were they right? Like, is this what God wanted them to do? Yes. Yes. Um, I think, so I think there's several things. Uh, also with what Mark was saying in regards to the second question, you just have to read the book of Revelation and realize that yeah. wrath is still very present in the new covenant. Right. Uh, the people of God cry out for vengeance. They want God yeah. to vindicate them. Um, the When it comes to the first question, um, for, for you to come to that conclusion, you just, you can't really take Jesus seriously or the rest of the Bible when it comes to the role and significance of Moses, because Moses is considered the greatest prophet. And if Moses was misguided this whole time in regards to the things he commanded yeah. Israel, he probably wasn't all that great of a prophet then, but Jesus holds Moses up as the greatest of prophets. So, so there's that. And then of course, just our understanding of what, of scripture, right? If Jesus's view of the old Testament was that all of scripture was from God, that, that, that there's not a, a what's, what's the, the Yoda or I can't remember the exact reference, um, but not a single part of the path, scripture will pass yeah. away. The, the jot or tittle. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah. So Jesus has this high view of scripture. So if, if we're going to say that this passage or other passage like it um, were primitive, then that means you're taking out about 30-something psalms as well that speak about the imprecatory psalms, the judgment of God. Which which some traditions do. So this, I think it was today, uh, the podcast that we released today for Into the Word was on Psalm 83. Psalm 83 has been removed from both the Catholic and the Anglican liturgy of the hours wow. because it calls for the vengeance of God against the enemies of God. Mm -hmm. And And... To be honest with you, so this is, I mean, we're sitting here and we're having an interesting conversation. Again, like I said, uh, amongst six people who all believe the same thing. Mm -hmm. There are tons of Christians who believe that there is no way that God told Moses to do this. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no way. And they would say, here's how we know. We know because we know Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Jesus said, love your enemies do good to those who hate you, pray for those who persecute. And Jesus is God, amen? Amen. Therefore, they'll say, could you imagine Jesus saying to Moses, wipe out the Midianites? Therefore, they must have misunderstood. Right. Tell me I'm wrong. So, so, I, so I would respond with two things. I would say definitely, as Peter was saying, there's a deficient doctrine of scripture there that when scripture speaks, God speaks and Jesus is God. Uh, therefore, uh, we need to listen to him. And there's not, uh, you know, this, this sense in which uh, the Old Testament is in any way um, primitive and therefore we should not listen to it. And then secondly, I'd say it's a doctrine of God issue that if we truly do understand God as a trinity and we understand him operating according to his internal operations. We know that everything that the father says is through the son and by the spirit. And so when we, when we receive uh, the revelation of the son in the new Testament, this same God is still speaking as in the old Testament, the son mm -hmm. was the one through whom the father spoke. Yeah, Jesus in the old is Testament. the spirit of prophecy. 
-hmm. Yeah, there you go. So like, so it's, uh, we understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he speaks um, in the New Testament through the Son, uh, just as he spoke through the Son in the Old Testament, but now in, in the flesh. Okay. I think also, uh, oh, sorry, but Miranda, were you going to go? Or? Oh, I, I do have one little thought. Two things to consider, too, is just what we've already talked about, the fact that God um, spoke to Abraham in advance, you know, 400 plus years. I think that's pretty significant. And then seeing Christ in the temple throwing over tables and having righteous indignation over the holiness um, and the defaming, you know, of making the temple a place of a market. And and there are other places that are less. Uh, I, I was doing some study in John at the resurrection of Lazarus. And when he weeps in that anger, he actually has anger in moments of yeah. Uh, feeling so frustrated with the people. So to think that Jesus is very meek and mild is actually not reading accurately the scripture or letting the word, you know, you're kind of pulling things out of it. So if you're, if you're already having problems, you're going to have problems throughout the whole text, even in the New Testament. Okay, Mark, you've got your Bible open. I, I take that as a sign. So uh, here's some, here's some progressive revelation for you. This is getting to the Second last chapter of the Bible, one of the most glorious pictures of Jesus you'll ever see. Uh, Revelations 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Mm -hmm. And so one of the final pictures of Jesus before the, the very final judgments is of a conqueror coming with a sword slaked in the blood of his enemies, which mm. I think it would be hard to, to get rid of that with progressive revelation. And I, yeah, go I, ahead, Peter. And the picture, like I actually had my Bible turn to Revelation 19 as well, because the picture gets worse as you go further along in, in Revelation 19, where yeah. the worshipers of, of, the, of the beast it says, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Mm -hmm. um, that's the same Jesus who said, love your enemies. Yep. Mm -hmm. So we have to wrestle yeah. with that. We have to reconcile with that. Now, now I imagine, so one of the, the groups within, you know, the fragments of evangelicalism, post-evangelicalism, that, that would struggle with this or that would say, would bring some of the the... the uh, the arguments that I mentioned earlier would be the sort of the red letter Christians, right? And the, and so I'm not sure that what what the I 100% agree with what you have just said, right? Jesse made an argument that actually there are no red letters in the Old Testament. That was the spirit of Jesus, and I agree. And then uh, here we've had an argument that that here we've got Jesus speaking in Revelation, but you know they might say, well, actually it's 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 a vision of the Apostle John, and maybe. I'll be honest with you. So I, I had a personal conversation with Brian McLaren about 
Revelation 19 a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. And he he does not take it the way you and I are taking that, uh, Peter. He, he does... He believes that that is a very poetic, symbolic description of the forward progress of the gospel, that, that that's the sword that Jesus is wielding, um, that, it is, that it is the gospel making war against unbelief. So I, I think to, to win this argument or to, to, to help people through that objection, if they're red letter folks, I think you got to take them to the words of Jesus. Like in, in Matthew 13, what Jesus says in Matthew 13 is no different than what the Bible describes in Numbers 31. Hmm. In, in uh, Matthew 13, verse, verses 40 and following, Jesus says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers hmm. and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's that's exactly what we're seeing in Numbers 31. God is saying, you've got to pull these weeds because if you don't, they'll spoil the whole garden. That's why they had to kill the women, right? Because the the women knew how to seduce these men. You've got to pull these weeds. If you don't, it'll ruin the garden. But if you pull these weeds, then the righteous will shine like the children of their father, right? That, that It's the exact same thing. And Jesus, in his red letters, says that very thing. You know, I think part of the, I think the real challenge here is, is, as Jesse said, it's a doctrine of God challenge. What God do you believe in? The God of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is, is a God of unimaginable holiness, who um, is very patient before acting in judgment, We've talked about this 400-year waiting period for the iniquity of the Amorites. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross to provide atonement for sin. Very, very patient. Peter says the delay of the Lord is patience, right? Consider it, consider it salvation, right? So we've got this, this extremely patient God who then, when he acts judicially, acts in unimaginable fire. And, and that is true. Old Testament, and Trumper, Trumper Longman says this, comparing this, this supposed change from Old Testament to New. He says, as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the object of warfare moves from the Canaanites, who are the object of God's wrath for their sin, to the spiritual powers and principalities, and then finally to the utter destruction of all evil, human and spiritual. Indeed, it must be said that those who have moral difficulties with the genocide in the conquest of Canaan should have even more serious difficulties with the final judgment. In the latter, all those who do not follow Christ, men, women, and children, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Mm. So again, I, I think, as Jesse said, it's a doctrine of God issue. What God are we believing in? Um, the God of the Bible is, is a God of unimaginable holiness, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Mm. And so while the, the patience of the Lord is extended, embrace the means of atonement that he provides. I, th- I, I think it, it's good to let this passage kick you in the stomach. It's good. I don't know a first-time Bible reader who is not floored by this. Um, let them be floored, right? And then speak to them about the holiness of God, right? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right, we've given that a ton of time. But as I said, that might be, if I were to make a list of the 10 gut punch passages in the Bible that, that knock Bible readers out of the Bible reading plan. This, this would be 
in my top three. I don't know uh, for you, but this right up there, maybe with Judges 19. I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. <laughs> that's uh, that's another another really tough one. Uh, while we're still in this this neck of the woods in terms of the Bible, uh, and, and a much happier note. Uh, this is a glorious note, but but an interesting note. In uh, in Deuteronomy one, which we just uh, read this morning, I guess um, there's this interesting passage that is often uh, summoned as evidence that there is something called an age of accountability. So the passage I'm referring to, of course, is Deuteronomy one thirty nine. Mm-hmm. Moses, as as Mark said, Moses is speaking to all the grandkids gathered at his ankles, and he's explaining to them why you know mom and dad died in the desert and and why they were allowed to live and enter the promised land. And he, he says, and, and so he's he's rehearsing what he had said to that generation. So he's telling the grandkids what he said to mom and their mom and dad. So he says, and as for your little ones, Moses speaking to the, the parents, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. They shall go into the promised land. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Deuteronomy 139. So the story is that that whole generation of unbelievers, that the, the whole generation of adults who refused to go into the promised land uh, the first time around, God condemned them for their unbelief. They had seen more than enough of God's power and goodness in the Exodus event. They should have trusted him in the moment of decision. They did not trust him. So they died in the desert. They will not enter the rest, but their children were not condemned and their children were allowed to grow to maturity and have their own test of faith and have their own opportunity to enter in. And, and so that seems uh, to indicate to some folks that there, there is something of an age of accountability. There is a, a mercy extended to people who do not know uh, their right hand from their left hand, who do not have knowledge of good or evil. So here's the question. Is there an age of accountability? Should, should we tell a mom and dad who've lost their 12-year-old child or their 8-year-old child, whatever the case may be, that they can be confident that they will see that child in heaven. Now, obviously, we're entering into a zone of extreme pastoral sensitivity, but we want our pastoral counsel to be based on a fair understanding of the text. We don't want to just be passing sentiments to people, particularly in times of extreme agony and need. So, uh, Brother Jesse, help us understand, is, is this counsel that we can confidently offer to people? Is is there an age of accountability? Is that what this, this text is offering us here? Well, Pastor Paul, I think the age of accountability is 17 years old and three months. So I think it's pretty clear. From, <laughs> is I'm that right? Kidding. I have no I'm idea kidding. where that number comes from. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for asking this question. I think it's a very important question. And it's certainly come up in my ministry uh, here down here. Uh, in short, uh, my answer is yes, the Bible does seem to point in that direction. Uh, that children who have died um, at a young age will be saved. Uh, we see scripture pointing in this direction in verses like 2 Samuel 12, 23, mm-hmm. when David loses his child and he says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And so David has the hope of seeing his child in paradise uh, when David dies. Uh, also, uh, uh, Romans 120 uh, says that everyone has no excuse for their sins because they perceive the qualities of the creator in the creation. Right. And so we would say that little children and those with very severe mental disabilities cannot perceive this. And so they would indeed 
have an excuse. Uh, they would be saved through Christ in some manner and not condemned. And then again, in this text that we just read, uh, we see something like this, like an age of accountability or uh, an age of innocence where we're not guilty until we know what sin is, until we can uh, know our right from our left. Now, do I know what that age is? No. Uh, and perhaps it's different for each child, depending on when the child starts knowing that their sins are truly against God and they see that through creation. Uh, I would argue that culpability results from the power of perception of understanding uh, your sin. When you, when, you, when you start to see those things, uh, that's when you start uh, to become held accountable uh, for your sin. Uh, but I think even more certainly than this, just speaking on a more pastoral level to someone who might be grieving uh, during this time and to have this weighing over their head, I can't imagine just trying to contemplate these things while grieving their child, wondering where they are uh, eternally. Uh, I think even more certain than this, in scripture, we see, we can take refuge in God as our good father. And God does all things according to his goodness. Um, he's a loving God and he does everything according to what's right and true. And so above all else, we can have absolute certainty that God will do what is right and is according to his goodness towards uh, the lost child. So God is merciful beyond measure. And I think we can take a lot of refuge in that uh, during this time. Anyone else want to jump in on that? I, I'll go. Um, I read a really helpful article um, kind of in preparation for this question, and it's it's on the uh, TGCUS website by Dr. Stephen Wellum. Hmm. And the, the question is exactly the same. Does the Bible teach an age of accountability? And he had five points. Um, two of them, he really kind of he kind of sets it up and then he unpacks it. But the third and fourth are really helpful. It says Christ alone accomplishes our salvation and acts as our redeemer. Even um, when a child, that that remains the same. So he says, Jesus Christ is the grounds or the ground of salvation for all of God's elect. And in normal circumstances, we receive the benefits of Christ's work by grace through faith in him. As applied to infants or those without full mental capacities, um, if there is salvation for them, it's never apart from Christ alone. The question hinges on the issue of conscious faith. And then he goes on to say, um, although there is no explicit biblical text that teaches an age of accountability, in light of all these truths about uh, what we've talked about, like 2 Samuel, I don't think it's unwarranted to agree with many Christians past and present that in these exceptional cases, God will demonstrate his grace and mercy in Christ alone. Yet given the lack of explicit teaching in this regard, our greatest hope is to entrust ourselves to God who always does what is right for his own mm -hmm. glory. I thought that was so helpful, yeah. especially if you're you're talking to someone who's grieving because we can think from miscarriage to um, the mental yeah. health issues that we want to comfort them and to rely on God's character, that he's a good loving father and he's provided a means through Jesus Christ um, for salvation. There's a, yeah, a couple the whole of article is really good. Sorry, Go, that's it. That was closing thoughts there. there Almore has has a couple of versions of the same article. I think maybe he touched one up for um, that he had written previously, and then he, he touched it up for as a result of the tragedy with the tsunami in um, 2004. the 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 most up to date version of it, I believe, is the one called "In the Shadow of Death: The Little Ones Are Safe with Jesus." 
And uh, he argues similarly to, to Wellam there, although it sounds like he argues perhaps more confidently. Uh, he says, according to the Bible, hell is a place of punishment for sins consciously committed during our earthly lives. We're told that we will be judged according to our deeds committed in the body, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Adam's sin and guilt imputed to every single human being explains why we are born as sinners and why we cannot not sin. But the Bible clearly teaches that every person will be judged for his or her own deeds, not for Adam's sin. That's so important. The judgment of sinners that will take place at the great white throne will be according to their deeds. Have those who died in infancy committed such deeds? I believe not, for they have not yet developed the capacity to know good from evil. No biblical text refers to the presence of small children or infants in hell, not one. Mm, cool, so what Moeller is saying there that I think is very important for us to understand is no one is saying that children aren't sinners. I, I have five of them. They're all sinners. They're probably sinning right now. Um, and, and so there's, there's no, no one saying that they're not sinners. What, what Moeller is saying here is that until they have the ability to discern good from evil, until they are, in essence, functioning moral creatures, that they're not held accountable for their sins. And I think that's, that's very helpful. I, I have a teenage daughter. I, well, I won't even say which one. I'm just, I have several children and I have a couple of kids who are teenagers. I have three who are teenagers and they make decisions at this point that I am not at all convinced their mind is in any way involved in. They, their mind right now is like a tiny little monkey trying to ride a giant elephant of hormones. And, and I just, as a father, I am infinitely merciful towards that. I mean, I have standards and, and we're, we're in an educational process, but in the same way that no judge in Canada or, or the United States is going to hold a 12 year old accountable, you know, for their actions criminally, uh, if we can trust dads with, I'm a monk, I'm an idiot, and most judges are are sinful. If we can trust idiot dads and and sinful judges to understand this dynamic, surely we can trust the Lord of the universe, right? The all wise God, to to be merciful and understanding with respect to you know to to children. I yeah, in my mind, this is I this this is a very very solid case based on texts and based on on the character. Uh, of God. And would anyone want to take a stab at what they think the age of accountability is? Is it, are we talking two-year-olds, three-year-olds are okay? Are we talking eight-year-olds? And, and I know that we don't want to get into how many angels can dance in the head of a pin, but I can tell you this, I've been a, I've been a pastor for, for uh, 26 years. This comes up fairly frequently. And, and Paul, I would, I, I would want to carefully push back, uh, not not on the confidence thing, but on ever setting a, an age. Mm -hmm. um, here, here's my concern with this, is uh, that we become lax in calling children and young people to, uh, to faith and to obedience uh, because we go, well, they haven't reached the, account of the age of accountability. You would remember a poem that we learned as boys called Too Little, you know, are, are the sheep safely in? Well, the big ones are my father, but the lambs, I let them go. Uh, little ones are safe, you know. That's uh, not a yeah. perfect rendition of the poem. And so while I, I want to give comfort to the parent who is grieving 
and yeah. is concerned. I also don't want to give a crutch or an excuse yeah. to a parent who is lazy and say, no, no, don't worry about your kids. Or They'll to a 14-year-old who thinks I can defer the decision on Jesus. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, good good caution. Because what, Paul, yeah. what Deuteronomy is saying here is not that these people, that these children are not in any way guilty. Um, I'm just going back to that passage, Deuteronomy 123, was it? Um, Which one are you looking for? The Deuteronomy 139? Uh, 139. 139. Yeah, 139. Uh, he says, uh, um, they have, um, who today have known, who today have no knowledge of good or evil. Um, right. Yes, they have no knowledge of it. It doesn't mean that they're without sin. So I, I constantly want to say to my children, um, this is the way, walk you in it. Um, this is what it means to to believe and, and to urge that upon them. Um, because no, I, I don't think you could set a number and say, this is the age yeah. of accountability. Yeah. And I, I don't imagine that there is a number in the sense, like, I, I don't believe anyone can get to, you know, uh, heaven, heaven's gates and stand before God and, and say, well, thank goodness I'm 17 years old, 11 months and, uh, you know, 24 days, uh, because I'm, I'm good to go regardless. I, I don't, I don't think that uh, I'm just, I'm curious, I guess, cause I hear a lot of people say infants, mm. But, but it wasn't infants in the story. The, the, and I'm not throwing out a number. I'm just saying the only number in this whole story comes to us in Numbers 1-3 when it's the original census. If you remember, it was everybody in the census had to die before they could go back around for the second go in, into the promised land, right? Okay, well, who, so who was in the census? Everybody Numbers 1-3, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. So it, it was grown-ups. Grown-ups were held accountable. Children and teenagers were not. And I'm not, I'm not again, I'm not saying that that says anything. I, I think six-year-olds can, can come to Jesus and be authentically born again, to be clear. Um, but I, I'm just saying, it, I'm actually surprised by the mercy and grace of God on display. And I'm not setting any numbers, but the only number in this whole story is 20. Does anyone want to shout me down as a heretic? No, that was actually tripping me up too, because the parallel passage in Numbers 14 that has this, that Deuteronomy 139 is summarizing, it says that everyone under 20 years can go into the promised land. And I was having a hard time reconciling how someone could have no knowledge of good or evil and be 18 or 19. How old are your kids? I'll send some of my kids over. <laughs> well, I don't know though, Paul, like sometimes I think my 13 year old, I have to like, I don't know. I'm having a hard time keeping up with him. Like he, you know, yeah. kids can understand. Well, we lost Crystal again. Yeah. And I think it, we got to be careful with this passage yeah. not to uh, equate, always equate going into the promised land with salvation. I mean, the part of the, problem here is, or part of the reason that the younger ones are, are excused is because I think they did not have the say they didn't have the authority they didn't have the opportunity to say let's go in it was those who were adults who said we're not going in and all the kids had you know and God is saying the kids aren't going to pay for the, the adults yeah um, it is it's, it is it, I mean it's a fascinating conversation and I, and just to be clear so no one's confused I don't think there's a number like I don't think we can win or lose this argument and land on I've heard people say 12. I've heard people say 13. That's why the Jews did the bar mitzvah. I've heard people say 18. And I've heard lots of people say 20 because of this number. I, I don't know that we're going to have the conversation and find the number. That's that's not my goal. Um, I, I, 
I just, I think it's interesting. I have a, a friend who's a, um, who's a, a doctor, a, a therapist, a counselor, and he's always telling me about, about how they're discovering um, more and more about neurology and how brains develop and how they're starting to say a human brain is not fully capable of logical or moral reasoning until 20, 21, 22, 23. And I hear that and I just think, isn't that interesting? I don't know. I don't know if it means anything. I, I just, I'm often surprised by the mercy of God, just as I'm often surprised by the holiness of God, which is why I got to keep reading my Bible. <laughs> Paul, I, I, uh, like I agree that there's a, probably an agent accountability. I just don't know if Deuteronomy 1 is a good mm. argument for it. I, I think Deuteronomy 1 is a demonstration of God's mercy to Israel. Mm -hmm. regardless of the age and that he's keeping his promise to Abraham and to, and to Isaac and to Jacob Yeah, that he's saying this older generation I'm going to destroy because of their godlessness and faithlessness. But this younger yeah. generation, I'm going to then build them and build my kingdom, build my people through them. So I think it's more just an act of God's mercy, but I do. Yeah, it's certainly, it's a paradigm. It's a pattern. It's, it's, it's yeah. not a definite precept. I, to be honest with you, the verse that I fall back on, is Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Mm -hmm. And I was at just as you won't find any judge in Canada, or the United States, who's going to convict a 12-year-old of a capital crime for these all, all the same reasons we're talking about, because their brains aren't fully developed. They didn't really understand the consequence of what they're doing. If, if our knucklehead judges and our sinful dads and moms can figure this out, surely the judge of all the earth will do what is just, mm -hmm. right? And I'm, I'm happy to hang it on the character of God. Uh, and I'll put 90% of the weight on the character of God and only 10% of the weight on Deuteronomy 139. All right, good. Let's move on to the next one. Welcome back, Crystal. We've, we lost you again there. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, Sorry, you must, I'm not you sure what's going again. on. Yeah. It's all right. It's okay. Um, Time-wise, I'm going to skip uh, Psalm 76, if that's all right. Um, it, it, well, maybe I'll just cut right to the chase. I, uh, I, I have been for the probably for the last two or three years you guys uh I, you know i write a little bit for the gospel coalition canada and uh, i usually have 10 or 11 blogs on the go that's just kind of how my mind works as i hit a bible passage that interests me i sketch out a blog and we'll we'll write the title in three or four points and then i might never come back to it or i might come back to it two months later or i might come back to it the next year when i hit that passage again but there's been a blog <clears throat> that i've been in the process of writing for i don't know how long on humility, um, what humility is and is not. Um, in, in Psalm 76, uh, this, this past week we read, in verse nine, it literally says, so from the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was still, when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. I think, I mean, just because I read through the Bible all the time and I keep seeing this, I, I am convinced there's an argument to be made that what the Bible means by humility is almost the equivalent of, of saving faith, right? Like James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I, I think what the Bible means by humility is, is literally, it's the place where you meet grace and mercy, uh, right? Like, so Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a great definition of, of humility for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right. So, so here's here's the conversation. I'm just I am convinced that humility is the least understood Christian virtue. Every time I almost every time, 90 times, 90 percent of the time when I hear somebody point at somebody and say, look at that guy. He's so humble. 
most of what they're remarking on is not what the Bible means by humility. It It is, I think, it's the most misunderstood uh, of all the Christian virtues. So help me out. What is humility? The, the blog that I've been trying to write here is called Three Things Humility Is and Is Not. Uh, so you know, finish my blog for me. What is biblical humility and, and what is it not? Well, it's I'll, I'll put you all down as co-authors if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've, uh, I've thought about this quite a bit as well because I I find it an interesting topic because I do think humility is totally misunderstood in our culture. Yeah. Um, I think one what because of postmodernism in our culture we've equated uncertainty with humility. Yes. So you know if if you're uncertain about something, yeah. you're if you write a book filled with questions and no answers, people yeah. say you're the most humble guy I've ever met. Yeah. No, you're not. No. You just yeah. don't take God's word at face value. Yeah. Any form, of, any form of certainty is seen as arrogant, proud. Yeah. Uh, how can you, how dare you have claim to have that kind of knowledge, right? Um, so we've equated humility with uncertainty. I also think we've equated humility with um, insecurity. Yes. Literally, those are my first two points. Oh. Here, let's write this together. <laughs> people, people who don't have their identity grounded in Christ are constantly labeled as as humble because they're they're constantly feeling bad about who they are, and that's not humility at all. Yeah, it's it's the shy, quiet person who who's afraid to speak their voice. That's the humble person. Yeah. And uh, and I think I think Jesus is the the most humble man who's ever walked the earth. And he was also the most confident man who ever walked yeah. in. Yes. And he had conviction. He was certain. Now, I, I realize we're not Jesus, but but you can have a man who's certain and yet also humble in spirit. Yeah. And that was Jesus. And I think the Apostle Paul portrayed it. I think Moses portrayed that as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that's humility's. That's what humility's not. I think when we think about what humility is, um, I think you're touching on something there when it comes to relation to God. Um, it's always tied to submission to God, yeah. right? Like, like the Bible just doesn't seem to have a category for someone who is humble, who does not follow God. Yeah, no. Um, but I think Philippians 2 is our greatest picture of it, right? Hmm. And, um, and, and really, if you sum up what Philippians 2 is, is humility is selflessness in the service of others. That's really what it is. So I would say humility is the background and love is the manifestation of it, right? It's humility in the service of others. So it manifests itself in love, but it's from an attitude of humility. And I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So. Good, good. Anyone else want to jump in on that? We're way, we're way closer to a biblical definition of humility than 90% of the conversation I hear in the church. Go ahead, Justin. I love I love what you're saying, Peter. I think you're I think you're dead on. And I might just want to add, you know, one aspect to that. And perhaps you were bringing this out with different verbiage, but I think humility is a posture of dependence mm -hmm. upon God. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, uh, a humble person's gaze is filled with God mm -hmm. and not themselves. And so I think in some ways, uh, humility is realism, right? It's uh, seeing yeah. things as they right truly are. Yeah. And so that we see things as they truly are. We're a creature, God's creator. We're finite. He's infinite. Uh, we're kind of smart. He's omniscient. And, you know, we, it, when we, when we see things as they are, we become humble. And so humility is not a self-deprecation. 
which is false humility, um, yes. but rather it's a it's a recognized dependence. And I think that's where Pastor Paul, you might be getting the faith. Yeah. And let's let's unpack that for a little bit. And don't you know? Let's not make any personal examples. Um, you know, but one of the things I hear all the time that I don't like, I hear people running themselves down. Like I I don't like it when I I hear somebody say, you know, hey, I'm I'm just a stupid guy you know, uh, walk me through this, or I'm the dumbest guy in the room, you know, help me out with that. And I feel like that's an effort to project humility that is actually an insult to the image of God. And it's not true anyway. Most of the people who say I'm the dumbest guy in the room are the smartest guys in the room. Yes. And and so it feels false to me. Uh, it's not self-deprecation. De yeah, no, I, unpack that. What, how did we get to the self-deprecation? I think what... Um so I found this resource by Tim Keller, who takes Lewis's quote about thinking of yourself less. And he wrote a little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And we, I got the E, so this is just like a chapter of it. Um, but I, you can- That looks like a T4G giveaway book. Is that what Oh that yeah, is? it's so tiny. I'm just using this as a visual. Yeah. But uh, the audio book is literally 45 minutes. It's 40 pages. So- it's something you could go back to over and again. So one of the things I find is just really, again, that quote again is the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. Yes. It is thinking of myself less. Yes. And I think that's so helpful because you, you know, you have pride on both ends. If you think yeah. you're still thinking of yourself, if you're, self-deprecating if you think you're amazing you're still thinking of yourself so really that self-gaze is getting off of ourselves and looking as we said to christ which will help us to also serve other people because we're not really thinking about ourselves or we're not pumping our own tires and anything that we say again we have to like it happens in the mind so deflecting those yeah. thoughts to think of ourselves less which will give us confidence if we struggle with confidence to speak up or it will also help us to be silent when we need to be silent. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's good. And I, I think um, I think C.S. Lewis was the one who talked about this that we we often can't recognize a humble person because they're just they're going about their duty. Yeah, and they're not think they're not obsessed they're not, with whether so, they're this or that. No, yeah, so I think even like when it comes to receiving encouragement, right? Like, oh, Pastor yeah. Peter, that was a, that was a great sermon. I think in the past I was prone to like, no, 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 like don't. But now it's like, thank you for that. And then I'll change the subject. Yeah. Like, it's okay. Now get off, get off of myself and now focus. So ask them a question about what was it that God spoke to them about? Or, um, so it's that, it's that constant, like, I think the most humble people are those who are eager to get to know other people and ask questions about them rather than always speaking yes. about themselves. I think that's the secret too. Like I, I'm, you know, I'm convinced that what humility is according to the Bible is first of all, a trembling before the word of God, right? This is the one to whom I will look, to he who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. It's the one who just says, I should not be making any decisions. I cannot be trusted. Um, Jesus, Jesus, tell me what to do. Jesus, your your word is life. That, that's, you know, nine-tenths of what humility is. And then the last one-tenth is just considering others more important than yourself. It's It's a life of service. And so in, in my mind, it's submission and service. That's that's what humility is. Submission to the text, submission to the word of God, and service to the body of Christ. I'm I, I'm convinced that's all of what humility is according to the text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, as I said, I, I, I'm also convinced 
it is the most misunderstood of all the Christian virtues. So good. Well, thanks. I, I feel like I've got that blog mostly written now. Thanks. I appreciate you guys. It was very helpful. Uh, last one I want to take a look at uh, tonight was out of First John. Uh, in, a, in addition, you know, we I, this has been a, a very interesting night because, you know, we, we've talked about as this has been, a, in my mind, a great advertisement for why you should read the Bible, because we all have our default ideas. Right. And 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 I think that even if you were to read the Bible every year, uh, you know, for five years and then take a break for two years. I think all your default religion would actually creep back in. Right. Like it would all just slide back in while you weren't looking. And, and it like sand into the glass, it would push out the pure water of God's word. We all have a default religion. We have default beliefs about God. We have default beliefs about ourselves. We have default beliefs about the church, everything. We have, and, and a lot of those default beliefs, they come from how we were raised. They come from our parenting. They come from our wiring. And they come from our culture, mm-hmm. right? So, so just this, just tonight we've been talking, as we read through the Bible, I have been freshly reminded, a big ice cream scooper just went into my cup and took out a bunch of sand and replaced it with the pure water of God's word with respect to his holiness. But then also another ice cream scooper went in, took out a bunch more sand with respect to God's mercy and gentleness and kindness and condescension. But, but here's, a, here's, here's one more ice cream scooper. It's, it's what we think is love and, and what we credit as love. And I just was very convicted this week as I read and have had this hit me. First John 3, 17 to 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And obviously, sometimes our circumstances open our eyes to something we're seeing in the text. And I think that's that's just true. As a result of this whole COVID-19 thing, we've been working on some stuff with overseas mission partners. And just hearing from some of my pastor friends in Africa was heart-wrenching. Like, our whole coping strategy for COVID-19 is, you know, stay at home, watch more Netflix. Like it, and, and the government will send you money. That, that's, now, I don't mean to diminish those who are frontline medical workers and those who, who have had the, the infection and have suffered greatly. But for the vast majority of us, this has been stay home, eat ice cream, and collect your government checks. In the developing world, in Africa and in India, this is a life or death proposition. And churches uh, have, have not been able to pay their, their, their pastors. And so just in, in talking to my brothers and sisters overseas, I've just been aware that uh, we need to put our money where our mouth is. So anyway, all that is to say, Miranda, what, what help us understand what does it really look like to love our brothers and sisters in deed and in truth, particularly in a COVID-19 world? Yeah. So one, I have another Keller book to recommend, and it's really- um, It's like show and tell. I love it. I know it, it is. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I brought some too. I forgot to show, but you go. Yeah, you, you can circle back to those. Yeah, so, I'll circle back. Um, in this verse, right, the first verse in verse 17, it says, as Paul already read, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So this idea of mercy ministries. And I have found this book to be so helpful. And if we had more time, I had like four or five quotes that I wanted yeah. to read out of it. It's so We've had some big good. conversations tonight. Yeah, which is no regrets, really good. But kind of going along, just kind of the one of the points that he says, because he 
in the chapter, it says giving and keeping a balanced lifestyle. So one way of just being mindful of the poor. And in this, he, one of his points is sharing the burden. So it says, first, we must give so that we feel the burden of the needy ourselves. Yeah. And then he uses um, Edwards, uh, a quote from Edwards and how often like different classes will talk about how they don't have any money to give. And this quote um, from Edwards, I'll just read it and then we can talk more about the, the truth part of that verse. But it says, in many, ca- in many cases, we, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he is not like, he is not like to be otherwise relieved, we should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of this burden on ourselves. Else how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear one another's burdens or bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? And so it's such a, it, it hits at the core, I think of, um, and it exposes, at least in my own heart, how greedy I can be to hold on to the things, these monetary things. And um, as I was kind of talking through this with Evan, he brought up a good point of even going back to the scripture that we see in uh, 2 Corinthians mm-hmm. 8, 1 through 5, that the Macedonians, out of their poverty, of poverty. during a famine, gave, gave out of their need. And so I think just practically, we've talked a lot about just like loving our neighbors, but it's often the poor that experience these hardships the most, like in foreign countries, like we talked about in India and Africa, but the poor are among us as well. And it's easy to rely on the government to do the job of the church um, and to give um, and to rely and know that they're going to be taken care of. So just to, to think of that, like how can we share the burden um, with the poor? And then thinking of, the other part of this, of this truth aspect, um, I think we've we've kind of hit lots of ways in which we can be mindful or to be sharing the gospel, be truthful or sharing love. But I kind of have different groups in the church or in the community that we can think through. How can we kind of intentionally and strategically try to reach them? So the poor, the unemployed, young fam- families, expecting mothers, tired mothers and fathers, parents of graduates, single mothers, single fathers, university students, singles with no children, retirees, elderly, unbelievers in our community. We can look at our province, our nation, our neighboring countries and globally. And ultimately God is the one to do the work. And that can be very, that can feel like a heavy burden um, of all of those people that uh, we need to share love and truth with. But really just thinking, okay, I'm just going to be intentional in one way to to see these people and to reach out. It's not very practical, but those are kind of the thoughts that I had. It's just being mindful of yeah. the poor and those different groups. Good. Anyone else want to chime in on that? I liked what you said, Miranda, about like having groups to think together about these mm-hmm. things. I suppose that is mercy ministry um, at the church. I think sometimes it can feel overwhelming for individuals, so we don't even yes. begin. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. there's something to be said for looking for who has God put 
in my life? Like who is actually right in front of me? Maybe it's not very glamorous and maybe it's really inconvenient. You know, we're not good at the inconvenient things, but like, how can I love the people that are right here in my life, you know, and just begin with something like you said. So I thought that was helpful. And, and yes, hundred percent. I think that's exactly where to, where to start. The, I, I would just want to press that out a little further and, and not, and I'm going to say, not because I'm mindful to think this way. I think just the Lord has hit me over the head a couple of times. This, I, had a, I had a friend who runs a, a fairly large international development mission contact me uh, two weeks ago and just get some help writing a, a, a press release or a what became an article for fundraising efforts in North America because mm-hmm. he's, he said, what I'm trying to get Christians in North America to understand is that the suffering that we see in our congregations, you know, people are, are depressed and anxious and all that is real. And we should be seeing that. But the level of suffering that COVID-19 has brought to the developing world is a whole other degree different because they don't have these government supports and they don't have uh, the, the things that we're all being helped by. And he said, there is a real need right now for Christians to identify and love with people outside their culture who, who don't have these supports. And so, yeah, I mean, that he's the one that got me thinking in that direction. And then when we hit this passage this past week, it really put it on my heart. I, I've put a thing up on our on the End of the Word Facebook page and released an episode of the podcast this week, just letting folks know, because I had a, a number of people ask me um, if if I could help them find a way to give to brothers and sisters in, in other cultures right now who are struggling. So um, I've put up something, and basically in, in all of June and July, if uh, people give through the End of the Word app or the End of the Word website, 100% of that money will go. We don't normally solicit funds because we don't we don't need any, but there it is set up uh, for donation. All those all monies that come in are going to be funneled uh, to uh, a project called Pastoral Sustainability or Crisis Sustainability, and it's it literally is just a fund to help pastors stay in ministry during this during this COVID nineteen crisis. I've I've heard from pastor friends of mine in Africa. Or having to leave their their churches and become seasonal laborers just to keep food on the table, and so there is an opportunity that's all going to be funneled through ABWE. And I would say, ask your missions committee to put some thought into you know we were t- Jesse, you're talking about giving out of need. Let's be Macedonians, right? Like we're all of our churches are in need. I would guess like donations are down probably across the board. Even still. Um, what if, what if in our poverty, what if in our need, we could reach out in spectacular ways to, to bless the church in Africa and Asia? I would just maybe encourage everybody to, to ask their mission board uh, to put some thought into that. If I overstepped, if I, if I said hit the wrong note on that, anybody want to push back on that? Just- no, I, I think you're hitting the right note there, Pastor Paul. Uh, you know, obviously we live in a globalized society where we are aware of the needs of our brothers and sisters a plane ride away. And, uh, and, you know, I think there is a moral proximity as some people call it there mm, that where we, where we are, where we are called to say, okay, do you know of your brother in need? Okay. We do know now we are obligated uh, to help them out. I'll be honest with you. I'm even feeling challenged by this conversation right now, thinking of ways that, um, you know, we could even be given, but, um, my wife will be watching this probably. <laughs> we'll, we'll be having a discussion. Yes. Yeah. We don't want to ruin marriages and yeah. Yeah, so, follow all the protocols. And, and, you know, yeah. second, second Corinthians nine, uh, says that we should be cheerful givers. And I think also yeah. in the scriptures, we should be sacrificial and those mm-hmm. should be the things that kind of guide us. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I think you're really hitting on something here that we don't, we are not experiencing the level of suffering they are and the yes. level of sacrifice that we would have to um, engage in would probably be very minimal compared to what they're, what they're experiencing yeah. over there. So just keeping a, keeping a, a perspective that's global, I think is really important during these times. Yeah, yeah very good. All right, we're gonna bring it in for a landing, but uh, Miranda reminded me to do a little show and tell. Uh, the, obviously, the big conversation we had tonight was, uh, you, you know, about the the genocide, the vengeance passages, the holy war passages in um, in the Old Testament. Those are uh, real heart stoppers. Uh, here's a, a great entry level resource. It's called uh, Four Views on God and Canaanite Genocide. Show them no mercy. It's put out by Zondervan, and uh, it provides you with four very different approaches to that problem. And uh, the, the Tremper Longman quote that I read comes out of this. That's a, an excellent resource. Uh, here's another. It's uh, Stephen Keeler's book, um, God's Judgment, Interpreting History and the Christian Faith. Uh, another great resource in thinking through these issues. All right, Mark, let's bring this in uh, for a landing. Uh, we, we try to uh, choose a psalm each week and pray out. I think that's a great discipline. I think it's a great way to teach people to pray. It's a great way for us to be praying ourselves. I thought we could use Psalm 77 just because Psalm 77 is about Asaph having to speak to his own soul, having to corral himself because he was starting to think about God in unhelpful ways because of a shift in his circumstances. You know, we've talked about how our default uh, approaches to God can, can really creep up on us and we have to correct that. We have to corral that through scripture reading but also through self-leadership. And that's what Asaph does. He's, he, he narrates, he says, you know, I was getting out of control. I, I, some shift in his circumstances, he, he fell into a hard season and it was changing the way he was looking at God. It was changing his approach to God. And he had to corral himself and remind himself of the truth of who God is and what God has done and then, and then pray and approach God again through that. So I just thought that would be very helpful because we're all in that. We've all been knocked sideways uh, by this COVID-19 thing. And I think it can affect how we approach God. So Mark, can you, uh, can you read us through that Psalm? And then uh, I will use it to, to pray us out. Uh, this Psalm 77, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my songs in the night. Let me meditate in, in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people 
the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we freely confess that we have a lot of idolatry, that our hearts are idol factories, that we have a default view of who you are. We have a default view, a deceived view of who we are. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so, Lord, we need to be regularly washed with the word. We need to do as Asaph is doing here. We need to appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. We need to remember who you are and how you have acted in the past. We need to see you as holy as indeed you manifested yourself in Numbers 31. We need to see you also as wise and merciful as you showed yourself to be in Deuteronomy 1. We need to see you as Christ, Lord Christ, who could uh, say that he is gentle, meek, and lowly, and, and, and yet also Christ who could speak of weeds being plucked up and cast into the lake of fire and the righteous shining in the kingdom of their father forever. We need to see you as you have revealed yourself in the word and principally in the word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Mm. Oh, Lord God, open our eyes to see all of who you are. And Lord, also open our eyes to see the needs of our brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, in one of the many parables of or, or, or teachings on, on judgment that came from your very lips, Jesus. You said that how we have loved our brothers and sisters in need, how we have responded, uh, will be taken as proof of our faith or not faith on Judgment Day, that whether we've given the cup of cold water, whether we have clothed the naked, whether we have visited people in their, in their oppression, that that will be taken as evidence of the reality or unreality of our profession of faith in Christ. And so, Lord, let us not miss this opportunity to, um, to respond to you uh, in the, the person of our hurting brother and sister. Uh, help us to see, the, as has been mentioned, as has been rightly mentioned, in the hurting brother and sister that might be across the road, but also, as we've been reminded through, uh, through friends and through providence, also in the brother and sister across the seas. Uh, Lord, whether we are here or there, uh, we are in Christ and we are one family. And how we care for one another is part of our testimony to the world. As you said, they shall know you are my disciples for your love for one another. So thank you for all these reminders. Thank you for washing us tonight in the water of the word. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you for joining with me, friends. I so appreciate you. I, I appreciate your commitment to this and the, the, the sacrifice of time. And I appreciate your diverse perspectives. I love having the Word of God pressed on me by you. And uh, I love the privilege of sharing that with our, our friends, neighbors, brothers, and sisters around the world. So thank you very, very much. And God willing, we will be back right here next Thursday, 
8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for another episode of Going Deeper Online. Good night and God bless. Before.